Hello? Hello? Hey, quiet! It's him again! The Mona! Listen, you pervert, why don't you go over to Lamb of Kai? They could use a little of this. I'm going to kill you. Who is that? Ho, 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 shit. Isn't Santa naughty? Oh, ho, ho, fuck. I'm pregnant. <laughs> yes, that's fantastic. I'm going to have an abortion. Don't you ever consider anyone but yourself? Billy! Billy? I'm sorry, you have the wrong number. Where'd your mother and I must know is? Where did you put the baby? What, are you out here? girl's been murdered. Mr. Harrison's daughter is missing. And now at the house where she lives, the other girls are getting obscene phone calls. Don't you think we ought to look into it, Nash? If it wasn't enough time, you'll have to keep him on the line longer. Christmas is a movie about a sorority house that is, well, the, the women of the sorority house are stalked by an unseen killer, um, plays a lot off of the the creepy phone calls, the uh, very, very good Christmas atmosphere to it, um, and it's honestly my favorite movie. Hello and welcome back to Scream Addicts. I'm Jinx, your host, and that was Sean Gabarine talking about Bob Clark's classic 1974 proto-slasher, Black Christmas. Mr. Gabarine is the editor-in-chief of Action Lab Comics, the comic publisher for which he is currently writing the Puppet Master series based on the Full Moon film franchise. Mr. Gabarine, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Now, as with every episode, i got to ask, um, of any horror movie you might have chosen to talk about, why is it that you went with Black Christmas? I know you mentioned that it's your favorite movie, but... Um, do you mean favorite movie period or favorite horror movie or does the distinction really even matter? You know, it is, it's favorite movie, movie period. I mean, there's just, for me, I don't know. There, there's a lot of fun to it because you have, you have, like you said, the proto slasher elements and slasher is my favorite subgenre. Um, there's, there's so much like, I don't know fun comedy in there so much unintentional comedy coming from bad acting from certain people <laughs> um um the the phone calls are genuinely disturbing sometimes and it's it's just you know it's got like everything that i look for in a good movie all all wrapped up into one yeah i agree absolutely i think it's it's just brilliant, I think, and uh, I've loved it ever since I first saw it. Can I ask? I mean, uh, you mentioning that it's your favorite movie. When was the first time that you uh, you ever watched the film? Wow, that's tough. Um, I'm sure I saw it when I was younger, but uh, when my wife and I started dating, we really went on a on a binge of just buying 
a bunch of slasher DVDs and everything, and that's probably when we started when I started to really watch it frequently. Was so that would be around um, 2006, somewhere around in there. Oh, right um, around the time that the uh, the remake came out too. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't bothered with that because I just I don't I don't trust it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> We uh we can definitely talk about the remake here in a bit because uh, I don't know my feelings are kind of complicated on it. Um, <laughs> they weren't initially. I'll definitely point that out. But um, you know, I I I gotta say I discovered the movie I think around the time that I was a teenager, which for me was mid uh, nineties. <clears throat> um, but uh, you know, I remember reading about it first as a teen. You know, I'd been in the Fangoria magazine, uh, rest in peace, for a little bit, and. Um, you know, I remember as a kid that Fango would mostly just cover new releases at the time, but they did this great retrospective piece on Black Christmas talking about how it actually, you know, created what we know to be the slasher film. You know, not necessarily uh, Carpenter's Halloween. And, you know, this was long before the days of streaming and was just before the days of DVD. And none of my local chain rental stores or mom and pops had the movie, so I wound up having to buy it on VHS from this great mail order store called Movies Unlimited. I'm not even sure it's around anymore, but uh, when I finally got this thing, like, I popped it in and I was blown away. You know, it's so damned well made and so well Mm -hmm. acted and so unbelievably intense. And I knew even then, only 20-some years after its release, uh, you know, with little mention of it anywhere that I was aware of outside of that Fango article that I was watching something that should be considered a classic, you know. Um, and yet it didn't seem like it was talked about much at the time. But now I think it surely is. It feels like all of horror fandom sort of rightfully recognizes that that movie is a classic. Right. Yeah, it really has seemed to have come back around. Yeah. And I mentioned um you know, Carpenter's Halloween, I don't know if you had read this, but also in that Fango article, there was this, uh, oh gosh, this crazy story um, about how director Bob Clark had wanted to create a sequel to Black Christmas. Right, and set it around Halloween. Yes, and yeah, know, Billy would be in a sanitarium, he would escape, he would return to his hometown to wreak havoc, and rather than being set at Christmas, it would take place on another holiday, Halloween. Right. right? Crazier still... Clark and, you know, John Carpenter had apparently worked together in some capacity after Black Christmas had come out. And, uh, you know, according to Clark, he had told Carpenter of the sequel idea. And, you know, four years later, we have Halloween. But uh, I don't know. From what I've read, it seems like, you know, in any case that Clark seemed fine with this and never accused, you know, Carpenter of plagiarism or anything. But it leads one to wonder, I don't know, what, what might have become of this franchise if Halloween had become a Black Christmas sequel, you know, would Thanksgiving have been like a trilogy capper? You know, do, do you think we would have gotten a long running series of uh, Billy the Slasher adventures as he runned, you know, holiday after holiday? Would It would have been very entertaining. It would have been hard to keep him hidden, but it would have been funny to see. I wonder if he would have eventually adopted a mask much like Michael has in Halloween or if they would have just kept him to the shadows the entire time. Maybe he would just haunt various addicts throughout his, uh, his <laughs> slashing <be>. career. <laughs> but, yeah, it, you know, you look at those two movies, I mean, Black Christmas and Halloween. I mean, they do share a lot of similarities. You know, the, the holiday being the centerpiece, um, a killer on the loose stalking a group of young women, the scary slasher set pieces. You know, we even have some... Uh, POV moments, you know, seeing through Mm -hmm. the killer's eyes. And uh, even down to the last act, there are dead bodies that the killer poses in the house in the final act. 
So I don't know what what makes the movie so effective for you as a viewer. What uh, why is it your favorite? Would you say? It's hmm. <laughs> well, like I said, I mean, I, I love the um, I love. I think the the Christmas atmosphere was captured perfectly in it. You know, actually, rather than just being a movie set around that time, it actually feels like a Christmas movie at at most points. Um, I think for the most part, most of the actors and actresses put on great performances. Um, Olivia Hussey goes a little over the top when she's answering the phone, which I love. Um, <laughs> Hello? Just, Who? Yeah. You just, know. <laughs> pardon? <laughs> just, just completely out of nowhere. It's great. Um, I, I like that it's so... Um, for me, watching a movie from that time period and hearing what Billy is saying in these phone calls and the, th- not even, I mean, literally what he's saying, but, but the things that's alluded to, like when he, when he's saying the, you know, what your mother and I must know is what did you do with the baby? And, and just, just things like that, that don't quite seem like, I don't know, topics that would have been addressed so bluntly then. And maybe I'm just naive about, about that time period but it it really always stuck with me how um i don't know how how <laughs> i guess offensive could be the word for those phone calls yeah they're practically i mean they turn the air blue at points i mean that first phone call is kind of jaw dropping i haven't revisited the movie in a while and of course i'm familiar enough with it but it seems like every time i watch it i'm always kind of stunned at uh what exactly is said, you know, on that first go around, you know, you have that great moment where the camera sort of slowly pans over all of the girls faces and they all have that look on their face like, dear God, you know, uh, except Margot Kidder, who's kind of like, huh? Yeah. That arched eyebrow. And they're kind of like, yeah. not bad, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, but those, yeah, I agree. The, the phone calls are kind of, you know, they range from being, kind of icky to disturbing to flat out terrifying at times and it's all Mm -hmm. down to that vocal performance of you know the actor uh, which I didn't realize until doing research for this conversation that was Nick Mancuso who's uh, you know he's an actor who's worked for like four decades I I know him best as being the uh, you know kind of the dick villain in uh, that Brandon Lee action movie Rapid Fire but um, yeah he he just he does a hell of a job and you know I, I don't know if there were any effects involved with getting his voice to some of the places that it goes or, you know, yeah, what trickery I'm, is involved there. But I, I saw something saying with him talking about it, where he said that he stood on his head when he recorded the phone calls just to give it a different, a different, uh, I guess, vibration to his voice, which really? is interesting. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's, that's what was said. That's so much more disturbing if you imagine the killer doing the exact same thing in the attic. Right. Not only is he a slasher, not only is he doing all these terrible things and saying all of these awful things, but he's doing it while standing on his head. Uh, yeah, I, you know, you mentioned that the atmosphere and the sort of uh, Christmas setting earlier, and I, I, I completely agree. I think it's incredible in the movie. And, you know, it seems to me like usually when you smash Christmas and horror together, it feels like either... Uh, I don't know, like either the holiday is just used as sort of a prop almost or a backdrop or, you know, maybe 
in other cases, it feels as though the horror is sort of intruding on what we might expect from a normal holiday film. But yeah, with with Black Christmas, there's this sort of perfect marriage of the two. You know, it feels like Christmas, you know, not just the lights mm-hmm. or the tree or uh, the cold and snow, but the film goes out of its way in the writing and direction to sort of firmly plant we the viewers in this holiday season. And then there's that threat, you know, introduced straight away that sort of hovers over the proceedings. And, you know, I know a lot of people love the Silent Night, Deadly Night series. And, um, you know, I know there are loads of Christmas horror films out there. I actually adore one called um, Rare Exports. But I think. Yes. Yeah. Very good. Oh, it's great. I That's like that is now my current go to, you know, uh, <laughs> Christmas horror movie every uh, every season. But uh, but I got to say, I mean, Black Christmas, it's got to be the best, I think, hands down. Uh, maybe followed closely by Christmas Evil. But uh, I don't know. What what are some of the other Christmas horror movies that immediately leap to mind when you think about that weird little subgenre? Oh, man. Like you said, Rare Exports, that's a great one. Um I'm trying to think. I have Silent Night, Deadly Night sitting in my front room. I haven't gotten to watch it since I was a kid, so I, I picked it up recently. Um, trying to think what other... Uh, um, Krampus was good. Oh, it was a yes. lot of fun. Um, that's oh. another one that got the tone right. Absolutely. I wish um, Mike Doherty would tackle every holiday you know, with a horror tale, because between that and Trick or Treat, I mean, the guy's killing it. Yeah, yeah, that'd be really fun. After like three or four, though, he's he's gonna wind up on like Labor Day and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> so. he would make the best damn Labor Day horror movie. <laughs> very true. <laughs> very true. Yeah, I uh, I don't know the Silent Night Deadly Night franchise. I, I I know there are plenty of admirers out there. I. And I'm a slasher fan, too, but, you know, I say that and I hate loads of slasher movies at the same mm-hmm. time. Same you know, here. I, and Silent Night, Deadly Night, I can't say I hate it, but there's something about that franchise that keeps me at an arm's length. And I wonder if it isn't how damn mean-spirited it is. Like, I watch Silent Night, Deadly Night, and I'm just kind of like, you know, I this isn't fun for me. Like, <laughs> I, you know, not that all slashers need to be fun, but... You know, watching it's a Christmas slasher movie, and yet you know you walk away from it feeling kind of bummed out. And then the second one, the second one's weird to me because right. yeah. I, I had never seen it until recently. Well, I say recently, like maybe two, three, four years ago. But there is this weird sort of uh, um, appreciation for the movie. I mean, it's not weird; people can love what they want. But I. After hearing so many people whose opinions I respect talk about how great the movie is on some level, you know, I was kind of actually giddy to watch the movie. So, uh, you know, I watched the first one again and still didn't really care for it that much. And then I watched the second one and realized that, hey, maybe the first one isn't all that bad. Um, <laughs> it's just I, I don't get it. I don't understand it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to watching the first one again because my wife insists that we watched it. But I keep saying that the one that we watched was Silent Night, Bloody Night. I've never seen it. So I, I, it was streaming on something a couple years back. It might have been one of those, you know, random Roku channels that who knows if they have the movies up legally or not. <laughs> um, but and I'm I'm 90 percent sure it was Bloody Night that we watched. But she insists it was Deadly Night. So we'll, we'll find out hopefully in a couple weeks here. I What is Silent Night, Bloody Night about? I mean, clearly it's a Christmas horror movie, but... Yeah, I, I think it's this, even the same basic premise. I mean, you have um, you have a kid who 
who sees if if I'm remembering it correctly, he sees um he sees someone get killed by someone in a Santa Claus outfit. And then later on he's working at a department store or something and gets gets pressured into playing Santa Claus and it sets him off. Are you sure this isn't Silent Night Deadly Night? See, so maybe I'm wrong. Maybe she's right. <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time that I've admitted that. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty I, I that might be that might be Deadly Night. Uh, but then again, I haven't seen Bloody Night, so maybe it's a direct ripoff. So it, I, I, I'm very curious to see how this shakes out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. When we think of other Christmas horror movies, I mean, they're, or even down the Christmas slashers, um, you know, I, which is such a weird subgenre to think about. But, I mean, we also have the uh, – did you ever see the Silent Night, Deadly Night remake, Silent Night, from about, oh, gosh, was it five, six years ago? No, it's it's sitting in my queue to watch, but I haven't watched it yet. It's I there is a lot to love about that movie. I think it's a lot of fun, but it doesn't feel with the exception of having, you know, a killer running around dressed as Santa Claus and, you know, there being like a Christmas parade or something. It doesn't really feel like a Christmas movie. It's a great slasher, but it's a so-so Christmas movie. Hmm. So definitely worth checking out. And then, of course, we have uh, yeah. Christmas Evil, which I think is just brilliant, too. Yeah, I haven't gotten to see that one yet. <gasps> okay, before you watch <laughs> any other Christmas horror movie ever, definitely check out Christmas Evil. It just came out on a really great Blu-ray a year or two ago. Uh, I, I want to say maybe Severin or Vinegar Syndrome put it out on Blu-ray, and uh, they did a hell of a job with it. It's uh, gorgeous looking, but uh, it's such a great movie and such a weird movie. Um, it's It's... I don't know that you could call it a Christmas slasher, but it's definitely a Christmas horror movie. Um, it, you know, you haven't seen it. I don't want to ruin that much of it. I'll just say the final <laughs> moment is the greatest final <laughs> shot that any Christmas horror movie could ever possibly hope to have. Okay. It's so good. So, but yeah, all of those aside, yeah, Black Christmas is, is so good. And you mentioned the cast, too, and... I, w- I was trying to think. There aren't many weak links in the film. In fact, a lot of them are really solid performers. We have, you know, we have Margot Kidder uh, fairly early in her career. We have John Saxon about a decade mm-hmm. before he, uh, you know, he played Nancy's dad in A Nightmare on Elm Street. We have Kier D'Elia from 2001. I think I said his name right. I probably butchered it. But um, we have Art Endel from Cronenberg's The Brood and Andrea Martin. And, you know, of course, Olivia Hussey, you know, who at that point had been in Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. She was in... Death on the Nile and Turkey Shoot and Stephen King's It. And um, I don't know if you ever saw this. She played Norma Bates in Psycho for the mm-hmm. Beginning. And she's yeah, that... uh, she's okay. incredible mm-hmm. in that movie. Yeah, that's, I... that's the first thing that I remember seeing her in. She's so good. I mean, I, I, I honestly think her performance as Norma is just utterly brilliant and uh, you know I was very curious to see when uh, Bates Motel you know the, the prequel series that uh, Annie did you know for the Psycho franchise I was right. curious to see how you know they, they were going to approach Norma if it was in any way going to touch on what Olivia Hussey sort of you know set in place with her performance and I'm kind of glad that they went you know far astray from that and that you know the Norma in the TV show wasn't like this you know, screaming mad woman. But at the same time, like, you know, you look at Hussey's performance and it's good God, it's powerful and it's frightening and she's just amazing. In it. And honestly, I don't think Psycho 4 gets enough love 
on any number of levels, but certainly her performance seems to be overlooked by horror fandom to a degree. And I wish that, I don't know, listeners out there, please, if you haven't seen Psycho 4, even if you haven't seen it in a very long while, give it another shot, if for no other reason than for her performance, because it's amazing. Yeah, I, I don't know if it was uh, so much because of the quality of the movie or just nostalgia, but it was, um, I know I saw four before I saw two or three. So for me, it, the, you know, the rankings on them was always one, four, and then two and three just kind of floated back and forth in the, you know, in the three and four ranking points. But, um, going back and watching them, I don't think it's the whole movie. I don't think is as quality as the other as two and three, but, yeah, her performance and it's really good. It's got a lot of a lot of high points for me. Yeah, I mean, even when she's like berating him outside in front of the house, there's this moment where it's like she looks like she's going to have a stroke. I mean, mm-hmm. not even the character, the actress, the way she she sort of like throws herself into that. And then you compare that performance to what she's doing in Black Christmas where she is very sort of sedate and she's very sort of like, you know, uh so very reserved in the movie too you know i and i think she's a really interesting character in this um but of course you know when the horror sort of intrudes in her life you know in the final act or whatever it's uh you know she definitely goes to 11 at points and in a really great way i'm not (laughs) knocking her performance i think she's very good in it but i'm thinking of that moment where uh Oh, the cop sort of, uh, you know, does exactly what he's not supposed to and tells her that there's a killer in the house. And she knows the two of her friends are still upstairs and yet there's a killer in the house. She doesn't necessarily want to go upstairs and she is standing at the door and she's screaming her lungs out for them to answer and to come back down. And it's Mm -hmm. I God, I think she's so good in that sequence. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, being that Black Christmas was, you know kind of a slasher film that existed long before the slasher cycle, you know, we look at it, we have a cast of characters that aren't the typical cardboard cutouts that we expect from a lot of those films. You know, these kids are in Mm -hmm. college and they're smart and they're funny and they're relatable and they feel real. And, uh, you know, Hussie's uh, Jess, you know, she may be in a way the first final girl, but aside from the fact that she survives until the uh, credits, um, you know, if not long after, and she has that androgynous name, she isn't quite like any other final girl, you know? Um, the way they set her up, we find out immediately that she's pregnant and she wants mm-hmm. an abortion. And, you know, there's that moment later on where we find out that, she, yeah, I mean, in a way, she is kind of a tad selfish. And I say that not in reference to her wanting an abortion so much as when she elects to tell her poor boyfriend the information you know, right before it's been <laughs> right. recital, you know? Like, it's just, yikes. And... Uh, you know, she isn't this pure virginal bookworm Girl Scout type with the, you know, the investigative gaze who faces down and thwarts the killer at the end. You know, she feels more like a real person. And I think she's all the more likable for it. And, uh, you know, and again, you know, ultimately when she's told that there's a killer in the house, when she's told to run outside, she elects to stay and try and save her friends. And that does strike me as a very final girl thing to do, I suppose. But mm-hmm. I don't know. Would you consider her a final girl? And if so, how does she rank for you in sort of that pantheon? I would consider a final girl um, because for me, it's always been like, I know there's a lot of slashers that have since added in all of the, the moral aspects of it. But even in the early, like Friday the 13th movies, the final girls weren't the most moral girls. 
Yeah, I've never I, – I guess I should say right at the very beginning here that I don't necessarily subscribe wholly to the notion of mm-hmm. what a final girl is meant to be, like that there is this formula that is rarely deviated from. I don't really buy that, but, you know, whenever we say final girl, I think we have to address each one of those points it feels like. Right, right. Yeah, for, for me, it's always been it's always been who is the – who has the best focus, I guess? Who's the least distracted during the movie? And – you know, sex and drugs, that tends to distract you a lot and therefore you die. But she was she was fairly well focused throughout the movie. Um, and, you know, again, like you said, she chose to fight back. I don't I don't know that she's as I wouldn't put her as high as like a Nancy from Nightmare on Elm Street. But I, I think she's she's pretty high up there because she, you know, personally, I love my friends. But if somebody told me there was a killer upstairs in my house after People have been disappearing and all these weird phone calls and stuff. I'd probably walk out the door and just try to call them later. I, I, I don't mean that to sound mean, but, you know, self-preservation, I think, would take over. So I, I give her credit for as the character for going back in and trying to save her friends. Well, I think, too, if you're screaming your lungs out and you're getting no answer, that kind right, of tells right. you what you... Uh, you know what's up at that point. I mean, I I don't think you're in the wrong for going out onto the lawn <laughs> and waiting for five minutes for you know Nancy's dad to show up, gun in tow. You know, but uh, yeah, but I, I I don't know. I there's a thin line there with her at the very end between bravery and stupidity. I think. Mm-hmm. So would you consider her like if we consider her a final girl? Then she almost certainly is the first. We can argue that Black Christmas isn't necessarily the first slasher film. I mean, what, possibly, you know, Psycho before that. But Psycho Psycho doesn't really have a final girl unless we consider Lila, and I don't think that really counts. And clearly Janet right. Lee wouldn't be the final girl because, <laughs> well, you know, spoilers. But um, so I don't know if Black Christmas would just be the very first final girl, do you think? From anything that I've seen, it, it would seem to be, yeah. I mean, I haven't, again, there, there's so many movies I haven't seen since I was young, like like Peeping Tom I haven't seen in forever. Um, I've seen an article, uh, I think it was last year, saying about a movie called 13 Women that is now supposed to be referenced as the first slasher, and I don't, I've never seen it. Huh. So that that's one that I want to track down. Um see what that has to do, you know what I mean, see how that story goes. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it seems from the movies that I watch that, that she would be considered the first, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this being a slasher movie, too, it, it might be the first slasher movie in a sense, or it might not, but, I mean, to have come four whole years before Halloween and, you know, for doing essentially the same thing, I, you know, I... I think we're totally in the right for labeling it a slasher flick at the very mm-hmm. least. But, you know, as with any slasher film, we even have inventive deaths in this movie. Mm-hmm. We have inventive slasher set pieces. And I was going to ask, out of all of them, do you have a favorite or do you have one that you find to be more effective than all of the others? Yeah, my my favorite is um, – oh, I, I'm blanking on the character's name. Uh, she gets – she gets suffocated with the uh, the garment bag. Oh, uh, Claire. Yes, yes, Claire. I I love that death. I even did a uh, an homage to it in one of my comics. Really? I had um I had a girl or a girl a woman get um get suffocated by a um a clear um shower curtain, and same same sort of 
same sort of pacing to it, same sort of, you know, people find her later and it's caved into her mouth and that kind of stuff, just because that, that death has always been really impactful to me. Yeah, and it's funny, we don't really even get this protracted sequence with her dying, but, you know, when she finally appears, you know, her corpse anyway, suffocated with that bag, I mean, that's, it's one hell of a jolt early on. <laughs> yes, not, it is. It's not quite a jump scare, you know, I don't think, but damn it if it doesn't have the same effect. And, <laughs> you know, I think it is probably the most iconic shot in the film, you know, so much so that they used it in their marketing. But, yeah, that that is a great one. It is really unsettling. Plus, there's that... It's almost insult to injury. They keep cutting back to it throughout the film, Mm -hmm. continually reminding us that, you know, for all the people who are looking for her, she's right there in the attic, you know? (laughs) And she just, she does so well at just staring. You know, they'll they'll keep the camera on her for what seems like a long time and she doesn't blink. Yeah, I I, I scrutinized some of those shots. You keep waiting for a cut or you keep (laughs) waiting for, for for her to blink and she it just never comes. Yeah, she, I, I don't know, there should be some sort of award for, like, you know, corpse acting, I think, because she <laughs> she does an amazing job. You're absolutely right. I And, you know, she had to have done it numerous times because all of the angles changed. Every time we see her, it's from a different, you know, different mm-hmm. angle, a different shot. And, yeah, it, it's always kind of sad and always kind of disturbing, too, because we don't really get to know her that well early on. But she seems... She seems nice. She seems right. like a decent person, and she just dies in the worst way. But, or maybe not <laughs> she, the worst. But she seems like the like a character that you would expect to be a final girl. Yeah. Oh, totally. They absolutely set her up in the beginning with uh, you know how she reacts to Barb and how she mm-hmm. seems to be the one who has you know a little bit of baggage and you know she seems a little downtrodden or whatever. You're right. I think I I, I can see an alternate telling of this tale where she's the final girl and Jess is like the best friend, you know, who dies in the final act. Um, right. Yeah. I, yeah, that's, I, I don't think I'd ever considered that before. That's a very good point. <laughs> yeah. I, her death is definitely, you know, unsettling. We have, uh, I said hers was the worst, but I don't know. I don't know if anybody in the movie gets it worse than poor Mrs. Mack. Uh, the, the hook is <laughs> just, uh, right. Yeah, that's, that's good. And I, I always, it always makes me wonder, you know, I've, is that is is a hook like that common in an attic? Yeah. What what the hell was I've, it doing I've there never for? Had one. What went <laughs> on in that attic before the movie began? I wonder. Right. I I mean, I, I would assume it's to to lower down through the through the attic hole and hoist stuff up. But that's that's like a that's like a a meat hook. That's or it's like a beefy hook to have there. I don't know. Yeah, no, I there is no reason for it to be there. I, I, <laughs> I, you, you do not install something like that in your house unless you expect to get killed with it later on in your life. I, right. Same with those null posts, though. That house, I don't, I don't know if you ever noticed that the null posts in that house, they're like, they're like three inches wider than than the um the banister posts, and they're they're like these flat almost square plates so they just have what look like these sharp corners everywhere around going down these steps it's ridiculous it looks <laughs> every time i'm watching i'm like somebody had to have just clipped their their shin or their knee or something on those i wonder why they were there and i wonder why billy never uh never bothered to utilize them yeah part two <laughs> one day one day we will get a sequel. <laughs> It was it was it was all foreshadowing for a death in part two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
I, you know, they got a top for me then if they're going to do a sequel at some point. I, I, fingers crossed they will one day or we'll get some sort of follow-up. More likely we'll get another remake and hopefully it'll be better than the last. But uh, they have their work cut out for them, I think, topping what I think is probably the most impactful death in the movie, which is uh, Barb's death. You know, the, the Margot Kidder sequence to me is truly upsetting because of the intercutting between, you know, these these – Young, innocent carolers uh-huh. outside singing Oh Come All You Faithful. And then this brutal stabbing of a fairly likable character. I liked Barb. I, I know Barb oh, had yeah, problems, but, you know, I, I, I thought she was an interesting character. And we just had that scene between she and Jess and, you know, her asthma attack. And it feels like we finally got to know the real her and not sort of the, um, you know, the the snarky, sarcastic, occasionally mean-spirited drunk, you know, that, mm-hmm. that's presented to us later in the movie. We finally see her as kind of a real person. And, of course, the moment that that happens, you know, within five minutes, she's dead. But, God, it's just <laughs> the sounds of her gasping and the sort of, like, almost thuds of the glass sculpture mm-hmm. as it punctures her. I think it – to me, I think it's the most violent and disturbing moment in the entire film. Yeah, and it, it's great because they don't have to actually show anything, really. You know, you, I, I don't recall if it cuts to her face at all during that, but I think for the most part, you just get some blood and the and the sculpt and the, the the unicorn lifted up and then moving back down. I don't think you actually see anything. Yeah, am I wrong on that? Uh, I don't recall. I, I it definitely plays as much more sort of. Um... You know, all all of those moments I think are in close up, and it's all about the tiny little details. You know, right. it doesn't feel like a typical slasher movie moment. It doesn't feel like it's. Um, it, it doesn't feel like it's sort of wallowing or glorifying the violence that's happening, and as a result, I think it's all the more disturbing for it. And especially, you know, sort of uh, juxtaposed against you know the innocence of those carolers just outside mm-hmm. singing, you know, what we expect to be a song that we hear, you know, every Christmas. It's just. Yeah, it just gets under your skin, I think, that moment, too. Uh, which which I guess goes towards how effective that, how, how effectively that scene is done. Because, I mean, my, my wife and I, we watch this every Christmas Eve. We'll, we'll sit down and watch Black Christmas. We watch it probably another time during the year. So I've, I've seen it, uh, you know, tons of times by now. And I honestly, I just watched it last night. And I can't say for sure if they actually ever show her body during any of that. I guess you know what I mean. It just it just seeps into your subconscious that it that this whole death is going on. So so I don't know if I'm misremembering or if they actually show stuff or what. But that's I mean, kudos to them for pulling that off. Yeah, I think that's yeah. Some of the best scenes I think have that sort of impact. You know, I'm thinking of like Texas Chainsaw and Mm -hmm. the, the poor girl getting put on the meat hook. Now I know. That we never see the hook going into her. I know that we have that shot from behind the hook and she's being brought towards it. And then we have the reverse angle where she is sort of set down in place. I understand that. And yet whenever I think about that movie, I imagine the hook going in, you know. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I same thing with Black Christmas. I, I know from watching it that there isn't a great deal of blood, you know, mm-hmm. in, in the Barb scene. And yet at the same time, it's. It's just a horror show in my mind what happens to her, you know, in that moment. And I think Clark 
doesn't always get the credit that he should for being able to craft sequences like that. You know, he was a damn good director. And, right. uh, yeah. you know, he not only did this, but he did Death Dream. And it's weird the sort of trajectory his career had where <laughs> he started out in horror and then he went to comedy and then he wound up at Baby Geniuses. But, you know, <laughs> which uh, I'm not going to knock because, I mean, I know plenty of people have. Um, I, I don't want to speak ill of the man because he's been gone now for what has it been about a decade? But, uh, you know, I not necessarily because of that, but just because I haven't seen Baby Geniuses. So maybe yeah, I mean, maybe it's great. Maybe it's fantastic. But, you know, he was certainly a damn good director. But I from everything I've read, I fear that that might be one of the cases of, you know, filmmakers sort of aging and, you know, the, the latter entries in his filmography, maybe not being as strong as the earlier ones, certainly. But I don't know. Do you have any other favorite Bob Clark movies that leap to mind other than Black Christmas? He did Christmas Carol, right? Did he? I'm pretty sure that he did. Wow, no, I didn't I didn't know that. Which uh which version? Yeah, the original, yeah. He directed the original Christmas or Christmas story, excuse me. Chris- let's, oh, let's, okay. Yeah. Let's fix that. Jeez. <laughs> no, I you know, I should have known exactly what we were talking about. Um <laughs> yeah, no, no. Oh god, yeah. A Christmas story is a complete classic too. Oh I two movies. Two completely different genres, both set at Christmas, and they're both right. classics. I mean, yeah, and both both fully capture that feeling. I wish there had been a crossover. <laughs> Can you imagine <laughs> Ralphie was, right? and his, you know, Red Rider BB gun taking on Billy in some sort of attic? You know, yeah. Who would have won? Well, well, Ralphie would have won in his fantasy, <laughs> and then when he would have woke up, he would have been gutted. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's I think that's sadly probably exactly the way it would have happened, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, he also, you know, he did um have you ever seen Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things? I have, yeah, yeah. There's that he did a uh, Death Dream, which I gotta admit, I, I think Death Dream is very well made and I, I think the sort of subtext is fantastic in that movie, but at the same time, like there's something that doesn't quite work for me about Death Dream, but I've only seen it once. I saw it like a decade or so ago uh, when it first hit DVD. I think Blue Underground put it out. And uh, I've been meaning to revisit it all these years later. Maybe I'll eventually marathon all of Clark's stuff. But uh, I will say that I loved uh, Murder by Decree. Have you managed to catch that one? No. No, I haven't seen that. It is this great sort of Victorian Gothic horror story that – if you're to boil it down to a log line, it's essentially Sherlock Holmes versus Jack the Ripper. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that's good. It's Oh, it's very good. Uh, Christopher Plummer is Holmes in it. And it's uh, – God, it's it feels like a Hammer movie watching it actually. Nice. And uh, it's not what I would normally expect from Clark, you know, looking at his other movies. But damn it if he didn't knock it out of the ballpark with that one. So <laughs> definitely worth watching if you get the chance. Andy did Rhinestone. I mean, how can you go wrong with that? <laughs> There was that. He, Stallone he, and Dolly Parton. He, uh, well, I, yeah, I, I got to admit, I've never seen it, so I can't judge it. But it's it's fun enough, you know what I mean? If you can just, <laughs> I I can get lost in a Stallone movie, you know, yeah. like like over the top is probably well, Rocky obviously tops it, and then over the top is probably my second favorite Rocky or, or Stallone film. But does it so I can just, I can just get lost with Stallone. Does does over the top? Please tell me, lie to me if you need to, but um. Please tell me the over the top still holds up because there are a selection of movies that I adored 
as a kid. And when I got older, I started revisiting them and found that um, they didn't hold up. And in fact, they were kind of terrible. And Over the Top is a movie that meant a lot to me as a kid. And I'm kind of terrified to revisit it. I haven't seen it in about, oh gosh, 25, 26 years. And I feel like I I probably need to, but at the same time, I'm kind of terrified to. It's on what Netflix or Amazon, one of those two, I think, right now, streaming. Um, I I watched it maybe two months ago, and I still love it. I mean, the the sun coming around to him, you know what I mean, because the sun's real real cold to him and real real uh, standoffish at the beginning. He comes around really fast, a lot faster than I expected or than I remembered it being. But um, and of course, you know, there's there's cheesy elements to it, but for the most part, yeah, I still think it holds up. All right, I may have to give it another shot. I, uh, <laughs> does okay. I'm remembering this right, right? Like he isn't his superpower in his hat. Isn't there oh, something yeah, to do yeah. with his ball he, hat? Like there is, it. I I don't know if the hat has its own sound effect. I don't know if they go that far, but there's <laughs> something about this switch. With right, the yeah, hat. That, that's when he turns the switch. That that that's when he that's when he's getting ready to go. Yeah. That's yeah, he turns the hat around and he's in the zone. Yeah, it's like his spinach. I don't know. It's weird. Yeah, right. right. All right, I'll have to give it another shot at some point. I'll <laughs> I'll do a double feature of that in Death Dream. It'll be the strangest double build, but <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Yeah, early on in this conversation, you had mentioned the sort of um, you know both the intentional and unintentional humor that Black Christmas has, and you know, watching it again. Uh, you know, sort of revisiting it for this chat, I, it is a really chilling movie at times and it is also really funny at times, but I think when it comes to the humor for me personally, it is only funny at times, you know, I think a lot of the humor really works, uh, especially Mm -hmm. when it comes to Margot Kidder's Barb, you know, but other times it feels like the humor is almost a little too broad. You know, I'm thinking of Miss you know, Mrs. Mack, the house mother, like she's, (laughs) she's a great character. She is. And I love her performance, but at times it feels like she's in another movie entirely. And at times it's a little distracting, you know, a bit, never, never for very long. And it's always amusing to some degree, but I don't know. I could also do without a lot of it. And I think the movie would be stronger for it. You know, for example, we have the, um, the fellatio bit with Barb mm-hmm. and you know with that Nash, was, that was so good. Yes, and well, <laughs> that scene with her and him is perfect because you know there's going to be some sort of horrible fallout. You know this guy's a bit of a jackass. You know she's having <laughs> right. fun with him. That's all you need, and like it's perfect and it's funny. But then we have this entire lengthy sequence with Saxon that attempts to pay off that setup. You know where. Uh, he reads it on the paper, and then the other cop is laughing his ass off. And then he slowly uh-huh. gets up and then slowly calls Nash over. <laughs> and then they sort of, you know, they, they have fun with him for a bit. But, you know, it, it, it just it feels like it goes on for so long and is kind of unnecessary. And there are a handful of moments like that throughout the movie. And I wonder, I wonder if it would hamper the movie or I wonder if it wouldn't strengthen the movie to remove some of that material. Like, can you think of anything that you would cut or do you think it's all sort of perfect as is? I I don't think you need uh, Mrs. Mac finding as many bottles as she finds throughout the house. <laughs> I think, I think it's entertaining and I, but I think you get the point 
you know what I mean, pretty quick. Um, trying to think if there's if there's much out. Well, else. like the the peace poster, like it's funny. When, right. you know, he saw, like, the, the what was it, the grandmother in a rocking chair, like, you know, mm-hmm. flipping off, you know, the, the poor, you know, viewer. Uh, and the father is sort of displeased with the atmosphere that his daughter, you know, Claire, is being raised in. And, uh, you know, as he's looking around, there's that peace poster that Mrs. Max sort of covers up with her hand. And when she does that, it's funny. But then they do it another half dozen times where he starts to look past and her hand is slipped and then she moves the hand back into place and then she smiles and then she kind of, you know, it just it feels like he was trying to milk too much humor out of some of the situations, especially nestled in what is a, you know, pretty creepy and terrifying horror movie. And I don't know, maybe (laughs) maybe I'm just nitpicking at this point because the movie is otherwise perfect and those moments sort of stand out in greater relief as a result, I think. But I, I I don't know. I could I, I feel like all of the setups what he feels like or probably felt like were the setups for those jokes probably work just as well on their own without having to continually follow up on them. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that's I can see that. Yeah. But um but yeah, uh, I'm also mentioned this earlier too. I made a note here to come back to it, but I did mention the remake earlier. And you mm-hmm. have not seen the remake. No. Okay. It's. Uh, <laughs> I initially hated the remake. Um, I I actually went to the theater to catch it on like I think it came out on like Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, something like that. And the theater, weirdly enough, was packed. Uh, I shouldn't say weirdly enough. I worked at a movie theater for a decade and a half, and weirdly enough, Christmas Day is one of the busiest days of the year. Um, so is Thanksgiving for that matter. It's very weird. But um, <laughs> but yeah. So I caught this movie. Uh, during like an evening, you know, right after it had come out. And um, I just hated it. I hated that they felt the need to explain Billy. I hated mm-hmm. that it felt like a subpar slasher movie and kind of a classless one at that. It just felt kind of crude and nasty and entirely unnecessary, And which bummed me out because, you know, I really like all the previous uh, Morgan and Wong productions. You know, they're the guys who did Final Destination 1 and 3 and uh, – they did Willard, which I actually thought was a great remake, and uh, that was very good. Yeah, I hell, I even enjoyed the one, you know, the the Jet Li Jason Statham movie. But, oh yeah, uh, yeah, but yeah. Their their you know their name usually means quality on a production, and yet Black Christmas Man. Ugh. But weirdly enough, over the years I had heard enough people sort of singing its praises, and I decided, you know, much much later on to give it another shot, and I I gotta say, like if you divorce it from the original. And you don't consider it a remake. If you just sort of look at it as being its own thing, sort of a fun, dumb slasher movie, it does actually have some merit. And it is kind of pretty enjoyable in its own right. So I would say that it's worth checking out, you know, if, again, you can kind of put the original out of mind for the 90 minutes it takes to watch it. Yeah, yeah. I've I've tried, um, you know, I, I've tried to track it down to watch it. Um, and I... It, it's hard for me to go in and spend money to watch it. You know, if it was streaming for free on Netflix or Amazon Prime or something, I, I'd give it a watch. I, I'd try it at this point. Just like you said, I would try to watch it without any connection to what came before. But I don't know if um, I just can't bring myself to spend the money to, to do it. Maybe I, I, I we, we still have some family video rental stores around here. So maybe if I can find it for a dollar rental, maybe I'll do that. What magical land do you live in where you still have rental stores, sir? 
in Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh area, we still have this chain called Family Video. I think they're, as far as I know, they're still fairly big, but um, uh, yeah, there's probably two of them within driving distance from me that are pretty pretty well stocked. I envy you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I miss video stores. I, um, I they're all pretty much gone from the area I'm living in currently. Um, it's and we had loads. I mean, there were a good dozen uh, within mm-hmm. you know uh, stone sort distance of any place you might find yourself in uh, in the sort of tri-state area that I'm in right now. There were so many of them, and then. You know, 2010, they all just sort of went away. And, uh, you know, not only the mom and pops, of course, but the big chain stores, too. And uh, I miss them. I miss being able to walk into a video store and rifle through titles and talk with a clerk about, you know, what people are liking, what they're enjoying, what they like. You know, Uh, Mm -hmm. I, I just that was I would get off of work working at a movie theater, no less. And then go to a video store just to rifle through <laughs> movies to sort of like, you know, depressurize from dealing with angry customers all day or something like that. Or just, you know, to zen out and, you know, look over cover art. And I just I hate mm-hmm. that those places no longer exist, at least around yeah. here. I um, I keep waiting for them to sort of have this kind of resurgence that bookstores had, you know, back in the day, right right around the time that borders went out, it felt like that within the next half decade after that, uh, all print would be dead and everyone would be sort of reading books on their Kindles or nooks or whatever the hells. And, uh, and it feels like bookstores have sort of clawed back some of that ground and they're sort of holding their own now. And, uh, and so the optimist in me kind of hopes that video stores are going to do the same thing, but, if I'm being honest, deep down, I kind of know that that's not true. <laughs> I think Netflix no. and Redbox effectively killed the video store. Yeah, and that's sad. I mean, there's I worked at a video store for like a year and a half, and there's there's so many movies that you know, and growing up going to video stores, so many movies that I wouldn't have found had it not been for just you know walking around and looking at the cover art and being like, "Ooh, that looks good." Yeah, you know, the the, the cover art was was such a I don't know. It was, it was, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> it, it was so fun to just be able to go and just look at random movies and be introduced to something new without somebody having to tell you it exists. You know, Absolutely. just being able to find something yourself was was pretty cool. And nowadays, you really don't. I mean, you can shuffle through Netflix, but that still is like, you know, it, it's them telling you what they think you're going to like is what they show you and that kind of crap. So it's there's so much that still goes unseen. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And plus, you don't have the interactions like, again, talking with a video store clerk or, mm-hmm. you know, bumping into somebody uh, who is maybe looking at a title that you've seen and, you know, being able to say, hey, hey, you definitely want to check that out. You definitely want to rent that. And if you like that, check this out too. Or, you know, having the same happen to you. You know, you do that at a red box and you're going to get a glare from a person <laughs> wondering why you're looking over their shoulder in the first place. You know, the saddest thing is uh, going to a red box and seeing like a line of people just waiting to return their movie or just staring at the screen as other people wait behind them and nobody is talking to each other. Right. And that never yeah. happened in video stores. Video stores were the place where you could go to talk about movies with other people, you know? And mm-hmm. uh, I just, I miss it. I miss it so much. And it's weird to think that 
you know, looking back on it, the era of the video store, it wasn't very long. You know, it, it existed right before I was born and it died only about seven years ago, but it feels like it was much bigger than what it actually was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it was, I think that's because it was so much a part of, I mean, I was born in 81. So it was, you know, so much of my life, it was there, or at least my life when, when I was paying attention to such things, you know, my, my friends and I, we'd walk down to the local video store on a Friday cause they were closed Sunday. So if you rented, I think it was, if you rented Friday, you'd get it for the full weekend, you know, return it on Monday for the same price. So we'd go down, rent a stack of movies or video games or whatever, and then just walk back up, pick somebody's house and spend the whole weekend there watching movies. Um, and that, that's just how it was for us, you know? So it was, it was always there in my lifetime. So I guess that that's why it feels like, you know, like it was around for so long for me. Yeah. And, you know, plus it provided something interesting too. And I don't know, I, I ever really thought about this, but I, I don't like this about myself, but I'm a procrastinator in numerous <laughs> ways. But, you know, with a video store, when you rent something, when you go to a place and you look around and you make your selection and you put your money down and you take the thing away, the moment you step out of that door, there's a ticking clock. You know, you only have a certain amount of time to watch what you've chosen and to get mm-hmm. your money's worth out of it, you know. And, um, you know, now, like, I can just, you know, late at night, I'm a night owl, I'm an insomniac, like, I'm scrolling through endless titles on Netflix, and I'm like, I'll add this to my queue, I'll add this to my queue, I'll add this to my queue, oh, that looks kind of interesting, I'll add this to my queue, I'll spend four hours collecting movies that I'll never watch, because mm-hmm. there is no longer that ticking clock, you know, it mm-hmm. is... Uh, Instead, I could have just watched two movies in the time it takes me to look through a bunch of movies that ultimately I'll probably never see. Yeah. I don't no, know. Like, I, I, I just – I miss video store culture. I, I miss it so much, and I never uh, – I'll never miss an opportunity to sort of, you know, uh, mourn their passing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I always build up my queue like that too, and then my wife will ask me, why don't you watch a movie that you, that you put in there? I'm like, because I, those are the movies I want to pay attention to when I watch. Yeah. You know, if I'm just throwing something on at night, I'm going to pick something random. And then I just, there was a movie I threw on my Amazon queue a while ago called Home Invasion. That was, um, it's, if, if I remember the, the premise right, a, a guy breaks into this lady's home. She winds up killing him. So then his, his widow, I believe it is, like, like befriends the lady who killed her husband and becomes like a big part of her life as this whole revenge plot kind of thing. And it was, it's, it was a really cool premise. And I was like, awesome. I threw it in my list and they just took it off of prime. So I can't watch it. (laughs) And I'm like, son of a, she's like, well, if you listen to me and watch a movie on your queue. Yeah. I wonder if, you know, I doubt that any place like, Oh, Netflix or even Shudder would do this, but I I wonder if they couldn't add that ticking clock sort of aspect to some of your (laughs) choices in that, you know, uh, I know we always have those lists that pop up at the beginning of every month, like, you know, here's what's leaving Netflix over the course Mm -hmm. of the next, you know, what if they did that right away? 
What if, right. like, you know, uh, and even stuff that they didn't have to pull? You know, what if they did the Disney vault thing for a while? You know, what if, uh, you know, they put out Adam Wingard's Death Note, but then said, look, you have 30 days to watch this, and then you don't get a chance to see it again for another six months. <laughs> then you would make damn sure to watch that straight <laughs> that away. That is very yeah. true. Yeah. And yeah. I feel like, you know, even Shudder, like, it bums me out. Like, I don't know that there are any announcements of what's leaving that. Well, I take that back. I think they just mentioned this past week that, like, uh, the Manitou and, like, other movies are leaving. But, like, uh, when they had Ken Russell's The Devils, that was another where it's like, hey, I need to keep this in mind. I need to watch this at some point. I need to watch this at some point. Ooh, I might need to watch this, too, and this, too, and this, too. And what about this? And, you know, I eventually forgot all about The Devils. And, damn it, by the time I remembered it and went back to catch it, it was gone. So, so Shudder is worth adding? Yo, yes, I, I would say it is. I I do adore Shutter. It's only I think maybe five bucks a month, and it's uh, it, it's it's horror for people who have moved beyond horror one hundred and one. I think like well, it's uh, yeah. Although I don't think that there's a streaming service out there that actually provides a horror one hundred and one. There isn't like a horror <laughs> canon streaming site, you know, that has. You know, all of the major franchises there right. and all of the classics. You know, we don't have anything like that, but I will say that Shudder feels like Shudder feels like a complimentary streaming service for, you know, horror fans who are looking for more obscure titles or things that, you know, say more mainstream fans wouldn't immediately think of to watch, which is maybe all the more reason that mainstream horror fans should dive in and check some of that stuff out because they have a lot of really cool titles on there. That's good. Yeah, yeah. I've been um, I've been debating on that, but I already have you know Amazon, Netflix, Hulu, Full Moon streaming. <laughs> but but Full Moon's adding a lot of their stuff to like Amazon now, so I'm kind of double dipping on that a little bit. But I have not you know, I've not I, taken the plunge for Full Moon, but I need to because I go through these weird sort of kicks where uh you know i don't watch any full moon for a while and then it feels mm-hmm. like i need to watch every puppet master movie i need to watch every yeah, yeah. species i need to watch every trancers you know well and what's what's a lot of fun about it is if you sign up for like like let's say you sign up for a six-month membership you get to pick three free blue razor dvds for them to send you really yeah or if you sign up for a year i think you get six movies you get to pick for free and it's i mean that's that's not bad. It, you know what I mean? That that's that's pretty good for for what you're getting. I may need to do that <laughs> because they they just announced a couple of uh, Puppet Master Blu-rays recently that I need to add to my collection. So yeah, yeah, very cool. Now, okay, so I got to ask. Uh, wrapping up here a bit, forgetting the backstory that we're given in the remake, which I know you haven't seen, and you know maybe all's the better for it because you you don't want to know what they did with the backstory. They, they it's. <laughs> Anyway, uh, just looking at this movie, what do we make of the killer in this film, do you think? You know, we have the phone calls, which are lewd mm-hmm. at times, and then they give us the names of Billy and Agnes. And and then later on, too, you know, outside of the phone calls, there is that mention early on of this rape that happened in town. And then later, a young girl is found dead. And we're meant to think, I think, that, those have something to do with the killer who is lurking in that attic. And we're kind of painted this vague picture of this villain, but he remains unknowable. You mm-hmm. know? And so I don't I in your mind when you're watching this film and, you know, we, we even give him the name Billy, but we don't know that that's his name at all. Um, 
But I don't know what what is what does he seem like to you? Do you have an image in your mind of who Billy is or why he's doing what he does? Like, you know, I never really I don't know. I always just took it at at face value of of you know what we get from the calls that he's that you know something un <laughs> I, I don't know the right word for 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 what you'd want to say for it, but something that. Oh, like did did something wrong with his little sister when she was still very young, and has you know in my head anyway has been lashing out ever since getting getting all the, the problems that came out of that initial occurrence. Um, and I, I, to me, this would just be the the latest you know what I mean the latest spot that he finds himself in. He sees a a house full of of pretty girls that he you know that he can associate. You know, in his twisted, I guess, twisted view of sexuality that he can associate them into, and just this is just his latest place to take care of that in. Yeah, and he is weirdly sort of, uh, I don't know if we have to call him capable, but I mean, the fact that he knows their number and has been mm-hmm. calling them and then sneaks in and sort of uh, holds up in their attic and, you know, Continues to phone them while upstairs. You know, there, there's, I don't know. It's just creepy that this guy is driven by motives that we, the audience, have no idea what they are, and we, you know, sort of, we never will. I was joking earlier about us, you know, getting a potential sequel at some point. <laughs> you know, that ending is the ending to the story. You know, and right. You know, let's talk about that ending for a second. You know, forgetting how chilling it is, and forgetting. Mm-hmm. You know, forgetting the tragedy in hindsight of a woman murdering her innocent boyfriend, uh, even if he was kind of a dick, uh, in what she <laughs> believes is self-defense. You know, forgetting all of that. Was it a 70s thing or a Canadian thing where a woman who had just been through a traumatic event would be put to bed in the same house she had experienced <laughs> said trauma in and then left entirely by herself? I mean, what, what right. the hell? Right. Yeah, that, that's... <laughs> That's always a that, that's one of those unintentionally funny moments of the movie. I think unintentional comedy. You know, what I mean, they everybody just has their reason to leave that room, and then the one cop just comes by. Oh, okay, and turns off her light and shuts the door, and just <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really weird. You'd think you'd get them right out of there, and that's another thing. You know, with all the deaths going on in the house and all those cops there, and nobody glances in the attic. There's nobody. a body hanging right above it. That you attic know, doesn't Mrs. exist. Mac is still hanging there. Right. <laughs> it, right. I, Mrs. And, Mac is the only one who appears to know that there is an attic in that house because nobody thinks she, to search for the missing girl. Nobody yeah. thinks that. Like, I, I just what. I, and that, for some reason thinks that her cat made it into the attic. <laughs> that That's the part that got me. I mean, like last night for the first time, I noticed that. Um, when the girls are all standing around listening to that call, the first call that you see, if you look down in the bottom right corner, the cat is sitting down there. And then um, Clara goes up to her room to pack up and finds the cat in her room when the door was shut. I'm like, well, that's kind of cool because it might have been a, it might have been a, a flub, you know, they might have messed up, or maybe it was deliberate, and that's to show that her door had just been open recently. So okay. I don't know, you know, it could could work either way, but it it just always makes me laugh that the cat Miss Mac just thinks the cat is up in the attic. 
when it, when it's you know a ladder to get up to a door that's shut. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I I always loved that the uh, you know the boyfriend when he comes comes back to the house and he winds up breaking a basement window to get into the house, just assuming that she's in the basement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I they definitely sort of lean hard on that red herring and trying to make him look as menacing as possible, I think, during the uh the final moments. And that's the right. part I mean, of it. You, you do have the out that they did go around and lock all the doors and when she runs down the, the stairs running from Billy, she tries to go out the front door but can't get the door open. Which they do uh, Miss Mac comments at the beginning of the movie about the door being stuck. So I guess there is, you know, a workaround as to why he would have tried to find a different way in. But if he didn't, if he didn't know there was something wrong, it's very odd. You know, that's like my only, my only real, uh, I don't know, concern moment with, with the movie. The movie did take great pains at times though, to, to say that this is a dude who just liked to smash things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And he's very eccentric. So maybe, maybe busting a window and going in that way is just, what he does, maybe that's what he does when he goes over to his buddy's house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd like to think I, you know, watching it again this time, I, I sort of had it in the back of my mind that, you know, what if he was there to kill her? What if, what if he was actually, you know, a murderer, you know, uh, you know, not that he'd hurt anybody before, but what if he had actually mm-hmm. gone there to kill her? I mean, you know, that, that <laughs> doesn't track that, yeah. as far as like him wanting to keep the baby alive. But at the same time, it's like, there is something wrong with him and he was lurking mm-hmm. outside like a slasher movie character. And he, I, I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility for that guy to fully snap and become a murderer. So I always wondered, like I say always, I mean, on this last viewing, I wondered throughout the course of it that, you know, maybe Billy in his own way saved Jess. Uh, <laughs> Could have. You never know. So. <laughs> in, in my last viewing, I kind of, um, there's that that part in towards the beginning where um where uh oh, Jesus I keep blanking on her name oh my god that's ridiculous when um Claire's dad shows up yes yeah and he gets hit by the snow snowball and that that one uh, college kid comes over and starts talking to him and saying you know I should have been keeping a better eye on them and it just hit me I was like if if because th- there was that whole um. I don't remember who the distribution company was that wanted them to add Billy at the end to make it less ambiguous. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, it just hit me. I was like, if they were going to do that, that's who it should have been, was that guy. He's saying he should have been keeping a better eye on the kids. He's the only person we see around kids in the whole movie. He plays it up like he doesn't know the daughter at first until he, the dad knows the sorority house name. He's like, oh, yeah, that's our sister sorority. She's not here. And you know what I mean? Even though he acts like, yeah, I think I know her. But then as soon as the dad mentions a little bit more about her, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, she's not here right now. And just, I I don't know. It seems like he seems like the only person that I could have, you know, bought as being there. And this is just with, with the most recent viewing. It just, and trying to find somebody to fit their, you know, that, that planned ending change. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that and, you know, sort of looking for who Billy might be because I was going to ask you, you're a comic book writer. You mm-hmm. are currently writing an extension to a well-known horror franchise. 
And, you know, there are several horror film properties which have found new life in comic books. So if given the opportunity to adapt Black Christmas to the four-color world, where do you think you might take Billy's story? Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Not to put you on the spot at all, but. (laughs) No, you know, it's. I, I think for me, Black Christmas works so well as just a, a you know single confined story. I don't think I'd even want to try. That is the best possible answer, I think. <laughs> <laughs> because you're right. I I don't think there is any topping that ending. Like it's just you know the the even hovering on that house as the credits roll and just hearing that phone ring and ring and mm-hmm. ring and when ring. they've specified that he must have made a call after every murder. And then <sighs> the only people left in the house are him and, and Jess. And then the phone starts ringing. Yeah. It's, it's so, <laughs> it, it's just, it's very impactful. Yeah, absolutely. I God, I love it so much. I, uh, I, I kind of want to go and rewatch it again right now, in fact. But I'm going to hold off. I'm going to hold off until this Christmas. So. Well, I'm really excited because I, I just opened the uh, the Blu-ray last night. I finally got a copy of the Blu-ray, and it's got a commentary track by Billy. What? Yes. I so I'm, I'm, up, very, so. I'm very interested in how that goes. <laughs> I wonder if they brought Nick Mancuso back to actually voice. It is. You're yeah. kidding me. Nope. <laughs> All right. It's an audio commentary by Nick Mancuso as Billy. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to buy it. I've been holding <laughs> off for far too long, so that's that's sold right there. So Yeah, when <laughs> when Prime did their Prime Day or whatever, they had it on there for dirt cheap, so I was like, yeah, okay. Because I already have, you know, I have the Blu-ray, or I have the DVD, and it's got the nice grainy feel to it still and everything. It's not polished or anything, and I like that. I like watching that movie that way. Um, so I wasn't in any hurry to buy the Blu-ray. But then when I when they had it dirt cheap and I saw it had a commentary by Billy, I was like, Oh yes, I have to get this. So I didn't even realize that that was on there. I hadn't heard that. So, uh, God, to me, that would almost be the biggest selling point of the disc. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sold, bought. I, I, once we end this conversation, I'm hitting Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, sir, I think I've taken up enough of your time. Thank you so much for being on the show and for choosing a great movie to, uh, to chat about. Now, can I ask where, uh, where can folks find you at online and what can we expect from you in the future? Well, I'm on Facebook and Twitter as Sean Gabarine. That's G-A-B-B-O-R-I-N. Um, you can find stuff about the company that I, I'm editor-in-chief for Action Lab Entertainment. So you can actionlabcomics.com. Um, gets you gets you information on all our comics. Um, right now I'm working on the final story arc for my Puppet Master series. It's called Curtain Call. Uh, issue one is going to be out in October. It'll be a three-issue series. And that'll wrap up everything that I did with the first two years worth of storyline. Um, and I have a new a new book coming out in on Halloween called Black Betty. It's about a uh, she's like a, a plus sized rockabilly kind of chick with tattoos and everything, and she's she's just a badass monster hunter. And you know she's she's a nice person and everything, but. She doesn't. She'll, she'll kill anything that you need killed, but she's gonna charge you for it. <laughs> you know, because she's she's got to make a living with it. You know, so it, it's a lot of fun. Um, yeah, and the, the the preview issue of that comes out on October. Um, the main the ongoing series should be starting in January, I believe, is the plan. Um, and I have a few other books in the in the pipeline that are still you know too early to go into, but. 
um, yeah, trying to get some some fun stuff out there. Excellent. That sounds really cool. I can't wait to check it out. All right. Well, sir, thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, make certain to like, subscribe, share, leave a comment below, rate and review us on iTunes, and be sure to yell at us on Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts, and I am at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend. Billy.